Welcome, Cult Hackers. I'm Celine, a media graduate with Interesting Cults. And I'm her dad. I'm Stephen, Stephen Mather. I'm an organisational psychologist with an Interesting Cults because I was raised in one. Uh, I left when I was about 30. So, yeah. And it feels really, feels like it's a long time since we did this, Celine. I've been on a on a bit of an adventure since, which we've talked mm-hmm. about. But it's really nice to be back. And who better than to have as our first guest since coming back, uh, the one and only Dr. Alexander Stain. Welcome, Alex. Thanks. I don't think I've ever been introduced as the one and only, but indeed I am. <laughs> one and only. You absolutely if, are. If you Google me, you might find some uh, <clears throat> images that aren't suitable uh, as somebody else has that name. and. Uh. So that's quite interesting as well. I haven't noticed that. I've seen that you, there's some quite old pictures of you in there. Um, yeah, yeah. As a very young woman, but uh, yeah, so you've been From fighting this point. fight for some time, I think, haven't you? I have. I um, have. I'm in it for the long haul, but it's also <laughs> interesting because I do, as I've been in it for the long haul as well. You do kind of see the long view, which mm. is you know different than when one's first out of a cult and sort of panicky and urgent to change everything which it is urgent but that doesn't mean it's going to happen quickly so that's literally something you're talking about the other day with our patrons because we have a patreon like meetup with with the listeners and then we're talking about that weren't we the experience of well the difference of talking about things freshly out versus i don't know five years ten years plus 15 so on (laughs) Yeah, have you yeah. noticed that in terms of your observations of of other people, um, Alex? How how people sort of change? Um, I guess everybody's different, but but there's a sort of seems like there's a bit of a process of of making sense of life afterwards and how you talk about it. What's your observations on that? Definitely, I mean, of course, there's a great variety of ways that people come out, and who who are the people who want to talk about it or engage in recovery because many don't Um, but of the ones who do engage in recovery you know I think right off there's this for a lot of people there's this and I know this was true for me a desperate need to tell the story yeah Um, and I had that so desperately I wrote a whole book telling my story Uh, and other people similarly you know there's many now really great memoirs out but I think a lot that comes from that urge to like yeah. tell the truth of what actually happened. But yeah, I mean, I used to I always tell the story of like I I used to be in a group of people like maybe at a party or something in the first couple of years after I got out, and pretty soon I was just like, and you'd have this whole ring of people around you. And I'm kind of generally a bit of a shy person socially, so it was quite odd. But um, the combination of people's interest in cults and my inability to stop talking once I had started on this quite crazy story, as cult stories generally are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then after a while, that does calm down. <laughs> and I think, again, for me and I think for many people, then you start somehow that links to wanting to really understand cults and start reading about them and talking to other people and and then some of us um carry on and end up doing academic studies or some other kind of study or or and or activism um and others just get on with life you know there's people take different paths 
a few people we've spoken to have said that they kind of needed a well took a break from it I guess thinking about it just didn't want to engage with it for a while and then yeah quite a long period of time later they've become really interested in exploring it um well I mean that's kind of dad's experience you kind of did sort of shut the book on it for a while didn't you and then I'm obviously very interested now <laughs> in talking about yeah. it all the time I think I think there's there's often complications when you leave of course um because you um you're also faced with some consequences about talking about it as well. So, you know, part of it is um, I did have this burning desire to tell people and to talk about it. But on the other hand, I knew that if I did, um, that could cause extra trouble with, you know, people, family, and so that that are still in it. So that also suppresses that. So, yeah. And it's a complicated story, but I, I do definitely recognize this feeling this pent-up feeling that you want to just talk about it i think it's part of the sense making process um to try and understand it yourself isn't it really that's that's kind of what you do absolutely absolutely it is and i think the other thing that can slow down that process is when you first get out you have to restabilize yeah you know you have to invent a whole life (laughs) you know so some people again do that as i did in a way along with telling the story and starting to do that. And for others, you know, it's more complicated. I mean, in a way I was lucky because I had several kinds of resources that a lot of people don't have when they get out. So I kind of consider that I was lucky in a way. And Mm. those resources helped me be able to do all those things together. But for other people, you know, they just fighting all kinds of battles and, getting out and you know there might be custody stuff and all kinds yeah. of stuff and i think for people who are born or raised as you say there's a, it's a high stakes business because i mean you may already have lost all your family but if you haven't like you you risk that and it's yeah. you know, these are very big difficult decisions to make as to when to speak out um and if to ever speak out and you know that's got to be an individual choice yeah, and for some people, the, I'm sure the right decision is to, sure, try to come to terms with it and maybe talk about it with a counsellor or others that can help you with that. But other than that, to just get on with your life and keep you know, keep going forward. And I, I definitely respect people who just want to do that. I think that's absolutely cool. Um, for our listeners, Alex, I'm sure most people know who you are, but um, just to... Um, just to, in case somebody doesn't, um, of course you, you, you're an academic, you've written books about this topic. Um, and you also spent some time in a group. So just very, very briefly, what, what was the group that you were a member of? I was a member of a supposedly left-wing kind of socialist political group in based in Minneapolis, Minnesota called the O or the organization, uh, it had various other names, but that was the name I mostly knew it under. And I was in for 10 years um, thinking I was supposedly trying to help with social justice, and make, which, of course, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I got out after 10 difficult years. And uh, just going back to the sense-making thing you were saying, you know, immediately from, started trying to write about the experience because I have always been a writer at heart and of course I hadn't written anything in those 10 years except very boring memos (laughs) about boring things 
Um, and I started writing right away, like I say, along with speaking about it. And that was really important because you're fed an endless stream of lies when you're in the cult. And when you get out, get out you do have to put together your, your own narrative of what actually happened to you. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of what I did. And that started me on uh, this rather strange career I now have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting how all of these groups um, seem to have a, a very grand mission don't they that the, the mission is grand so you know yours is to yours was to save the world um to to create social justice through political means um for us you know it was to save people's lives through uh the witnessing and uh getting them to convert to to being a jehovah's witness you know but the actual activity that you do is really boring and dull you know so you were writing boring memos we were trudging around knocking on empty doors you know <laughs> well um, yeah we were baking bread we were working two jobs you know our pay job and then another eight hour shift doing cult work we were yeah. god it was yeah i think that's a feature that doesn't get talked about a lot about cults. Mm. boring life yeah. is you know you're doing yeah. one thing you're saying the same things over and over again mm. you can't do anything interesting basically even though it's not that you know there were some interesting things and i think this is hard for people when they get out because there were some things that were nice you know like i was told to be a machinist which i think i don't know what that's called in england but anyway it's quite a highly skilled job um not quite a tool and die maker, but sort of related. Okay. And I enjoyed, that was interesting. And I enjoyed that experience. And I probably wouldn't have done it. Well, I'm mm. sure I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been in the cult. But I don't ascribe that to the cult. I mean, okay, they told me to do it, but I'm the one who actually did it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, but a lot of the other stuff was really boring. So anyway, yeah. So the, the activity is generally quite boring. Um but you do have this sense of a of an important mission, and I can I think this again is why perhaps when you leave you you you're almost searching for a new purpose, a new mission, uh, because that there is a bit of a void there, and I think that's another reason why perhaps people get very quickly into activism or they want to write a book or uh, you know do a YouTube channel or whatever. I think there's a there's a kind of need to fill that that need to do something important and um uh, i don't know it, it's it's not something that i don't think it's been studied really but um but it'd be interesting to to look into that i think it's also like for me it was a way both of yeah keeping that social justice mission which i'd had since childhood because of my particular family background but also it's a way to make meaning out of an experience that has really shredded meaning yeah in your life and gaslit you about meaning and conned you and you have all these feelings of shame and grief and loss and anger and i think it's a way to try to turn that around and and yeah and primo levi talks about that he's a wonderful author who was um in the neighboring camp to auschwitz which i always forget i think it's birkenau no he was in auschwitz what am i talking about sorry anyway he's a marvelous author and he talked about how he had this terrible urge to speak after he got out and his 
biggest fear was that no one would believe him, mm. which was often true that people didn't believe him. It took years for people to get all that evidence about re what yeah. really happened in the concentration camps. But I think it's it's a way to take something, and I'm not comparing myself to someone who's in a concentration camp, but but they are, you know, they're varying levels of trauma. Let's acknowledge mm. that, you know. Mm. But it is a way to make meaning out of a traumatic experience and in a way to take, I think, try to take control of that terrible mm. experience. Is it like that um, you've mentioned before? The, is it bricolage? Yeah, the French word for uh, what the peasants would do, the French peasants would uh, sort of find bits and bobs of bits of wire and um, bits of cloth and so on. Um, they just basically pick these bits up from things people left behind and they'd make things with them. And this name came to be known as bricolage. And it's used in some psychological literature to kind of explain how people sometimes, especially after trauma, will um, cobble together bits of identity based on you know, lots of different experiences, some of which was in whatever traumatic experience they had. But uh, I kind of like that concept. I'd like to 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 sort of use it a bit more. It's just a, a metaphor, really, but it's a really interesting one that, that that's what we do. We kind of cobble together based on what our available resources that we have. And that's uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's an interesting concept. Um, so it's about two years um, since we spoke to you. I wow. think it must be. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so we're coming up to our third year, our third birthday as a podcast. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. We'll <laughs> have to celebrate that now. Um, <laughs> so uh, so that's kind of amazing. So it's uh, quite a while since we spoke to you on the podcast. Um, we, we've spoken quite regularly, uh, me and you, Alex, but um, on the podcast, uh, we haven't heard from you. So what have you been up to? You've been quite busy, I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, can I remember what I've been doing? <laughs> um, well, there's the media explosion has carried on, mm. um, as people in this field are very aware. So I do quite a lot of that. I suppose the thing I think is the best thing that from, that I've been involved with that's come out is the BBC uh, TV program and their podcast, A Very British Cult. And I was very pleased to be part of that. Um, and one thing I do want to say about that, because I, you know, a lot of us are getting calls to, you know, tell our stories on the media. And that one, and there was another one, another one that hasn't come out yet that I've just recently been involved with, who mm -hmm. some training, and I won't spe say specifics, with a production company. You know, they actually kind of paid us money, which doesn't usually happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to give them training about how to be kind of responsible in telling the story and particularly how to safeguard their interviewees. Um, and the the very British cult people, that production company, didn't quite do that, but they did a lot of background research. I mean, I think I talked to them two years before the final production. So I'm saying all that to say that there are some productions where they're really doing their homework they're really trying to understand and just not just go in in a voyeuristic, heavy and, you know, damaging way to interviewees, which also happens. Mm. 
And so I'm, there's a kind of, I'm hoping this shows a level of sophistication and care that's growing in the fields. Definitely won't be the whole field, but in reputable companies who are. So that is kind of interesting. Uh, so the media stuff, you know, I continue doing a small amount of, of um, cult recovery counseling, um, working with the charity FST. And thank you, Stephen, for your fundraising activities, which oh, way if anyone that. else wants to do any kind of charity thing and make us the don the donee, no, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> and donate to FSC, we desperately need support and we make very good use of, of all funds in the support group and campaigning and other activities. So that's just a plug there. <laughs> but yeah, quite busy with the charity. Um, I recently during the last few years, wrote a chapter for a book that's coming out on, it's a seven volume series from Oxford University Press um, on extreme beliefs and behavior. And I was asked to do a um, chapter kind of trying to link and talk about the overlaps of a bunch of related concepts, extremism, cults, um, violent extremism, conspiracism, apocalypticism. Wow. Um, it was quite challenging, but I... Sounds really interesting. Can't wait to read that. Um, I don't you write much for academic things, but this seemed an important one to... Mm. And I was, you know, I'm always honoured when people ask me to do things like that. When did I do the January 6th committee? I don't know if I talked about oh, I've that. I've not heard about that. That was a, actually a career peak in my own mm. estimation. So the the um, U.S. Senate Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection, uh, the invasion of the Capitol that mm. Trump is up on charges for, and along with a lot of other people. So there was um, this very good committee that did really good work. Uh, one of the sort of subcommittees, um, they invited me to write a, uh, a submission. It's kind of like, a bit like a witness statement yeah. um, talking about how Trump and Trumpism and and the various other bits of that insurrection were had cultic elements. Um, so that if anyone's interested, that's both on my website and I think you can said there's someone there's an archive of all the things that were submitted. So that was really interesting. And what I focused on was Trump as a cult leader, classic cult leader, uh, the Proud Boys as something that looked very much like a cult, and very interestingly, the Rod of Iron Ministries, which the Rod of Iron is a spin-off from the Moonies run by the son of Reverend Moon. Right. And they were there with weapons um, and... There were many other groups there, but I focus on those three elements and just went through kind of cult de the cult definition I used and said this is where they fit. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah, so oh, it's fascinating. I didn't realize you'd done that. Um, that's really interesting. So we we actually reviewed Stephen Hassan's book um, when it first came out, The Court of Trump. Very good um, book. Actually. Yeah, it, was, it good is a good book. book, and and I think there were parts of it that I. I suppose I started from quite a sceptical place because I, I've got a worry, um, as you know, that we don't kind of 
well everything a cult because then that the word cult has no meaning you know so if anything you don't like is is a cult then it sort of diminishes it um but i i think he he did convince me um as i read the book um or at least it became more and more convincing and then as time's gone on i think i've become much more willing to to sort of see it that way so yeah that that's obviously your conclusion what um I wouldn't mind just stopping on that for a moment and um, getting your thoughts on that. So what um, the arguments that uh, this form of Trumpism is a cult, how would you sort of frame that? Well, first of all, I think in order to make the argument, you have to have some kind of definition that you work, which as people will know, I have a definition and it certainly is very similar to other scholars like Yaniel Alic and Steve and other people. Mm -hmm. We each have a bit our own take. But so, you know, the charismatic authoritarian leader, you know, so a charismatic bully, Trump, ding, tick. Um, <laughs> uh, the isolating a steeply hierarch- hierarchical structure with a lieutenant, an unstable lieutenant layer, and then kind of rings of that go further and further out. Um, now, he definitely had an unstable lieutenant layer. He was constantly firing people and then promoting mm. other people. I mean, I don't know. They People did not stay long other yeah. than just family members. Yeah, that. So the structure looked very much like that, that people were definitely in or out. You know, mm. you could, and then there were the, all these kind of other groups around him, like the right-wing evangelical groups, uh, which have been around for ages, the churches that were his base in a way, sort of at the bottom in a way of this pyramid or near the bottom. So that I saw the structure and the belief system, this kind of fiction that supports, I mean, the stuff that comes out now about Trump, you know, I don't know if you've seen these memes of him as, you know, this bodybuilder with this fantastic body and then this Trump face on it, you know. (laughs) And you're like, no, I don't think so. You know, they've really made him into a kind of God. And that's sort of this, how the ideology supports the figure of this charismatic person. And it's lies. You know, he, I mean, we know, you know, there's the famous New York Times thing where they, oh no, I think it was the Washington Post that tracked his lies. And I think they got up to like 30 some thousand you know, he just, every word out of his mouth was a lie. But that also comes down into the ideology that it's just not connected to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's got all the fear elements, you know, the rapists coming across our border. I mean, these are just poor Honduran refugees who can't, who are fleeing the drug trade and utter poverty, and he's calling them rapists. It was that hit home personally for me because my kids are adopted from Honduras and it really upset mm-hmm. But it's just, they're just lies. Um, we're getting a little bit of that in this country, uh, I referred to yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've really got to be careful when they start telling what are obvious lies. So um, just, just let us listeners know what, what you mean by that. Uh, so you're referring to? I'm referring to Sunak rolling back on the net zero pledges and saying things like, well, we're going to roll back on the meat tax, the, the compulsory car sharing. 
Yeah. Uh, what was the other one? The seven bins, the seven mm -hmm. have to recycle into seven. I mean, these are just lies. And everybody these were never, these were never, yeah, never policies um, for him to um, to reject, were they? You know, so they just make up these lies, which mm. are these fear arousing. Oh my God, I'm going to be you know locked up if I don't car share or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it, it's extraordinary. So, but anyway, Trump's the master of that. R Rishi Sunak is only just learning how to do it. Um, mm. I'm sorry, I'm putting my politics on my sleeve because I think it matters, you know. And so I agree. I think he's a smarmy bastard too. Yeah, but, well, <laughs> and it's gaslighting. It's gaslighting. Mm -hmm. People start going, "Well, was is there a meat tax?" You know, they start mm. questioning themselves. You know, and no, that's just a lie. You don't have to question yourself. You have to question him. So that's the third part of my definition, just this kind of fictional apocalyptic ideology. The fourth part, the brainwashing, the alternating between nice and nasty, <laughs> to put it. Um, I think you can hear that in Trump's speech. You know, there's all this, oh, I love you. Mm. Then I can't think of a really good example right now, but then, you know, if you turn on him, you know, he's vicious and it happens just in the blink of an eye and it's unsettling. You know, you don't know yeah. who you're dealing with. Um, and then my fifth definition is just the exploitation of followers and my fifth point in the definition. And clearly, Massive. you know, all those, those people who were at the January 6th thing who were just not maybe directly connected to one of these groups, but, so what I call punters, you know, they were just followers, you know, they're going to do jail time um, and as they should, but nonetheless, he better do jail time. You know, and that gets us to the whole thing about who's guilty in a cult, you know, and if you point. don't get the leader, it's really rotten if you're just getting the followers. Um, so I hope he does anyway I yeah I, I think that's really interesting a lot of people um liken his organization to a criminal boss you know a criminal gang like a mafia style thing and, and actually there's a lot of similarities between those and cults i mean you know the coercive control studies often talk about organized crime in the same mm -hmm. as cultic groups because they that's Sorry, I, was gonna say, I think that's how the case was put together for the um, Ranieri case, wasn't it? It was put together as yeah. it was a criminal organisation because it was. Mm. And that's the Trump one. It's the RICO Act, which is a is an organised crime act, which we don't really have here, I don't think. Um, mm. And the chair of the FST, Tom Sackville, always talks about cults. He says, oh, they're just criminal organisations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um and I think that's true. They all engage in some kind of criminal activity. It's just we don't always know what it is. Um, uh, absolutely. But they do. By uh, hiding pedophiles in the case of the JWs, yeah. you know, that's crime. That's what that is. And hopefully um, as the coercive control laws expand, that um, it, we can put the definition of criminal activity on it more and more, hopefully. That is certainly our goal at FST, and I, I know you wanted to chat about that a little bit. I do want to definitely talk about that. I, I, just before we leave that, I think the other word that was going through my head was loyalty as well. So demanding loyalty is something that cults, um, something that uh, criminal bosses, um, 
they all have this in common that the the boss you have to be totally loyal and any any sign of disloyalty is you know is, is the worst crime in the world and that's certainly true with trump you know that's one of his things is he absolutely values loyalty above all else really and that it's good for you yes uh, that and i think that's yeah i think some criminal organizations maybe you're just stuck in them and you know you're just so to speak their slave but the thing about cultic forms and coercive control is that the victim is feels it's good for them mm. um, or they're supposed to feel that hi i'm tracy and i'm sharon and we are feet of clay confessions of the cult sisters So way back in the 1970s, we became radical Christians in the Jesus movement. We were promoted to leadership in the crazy cult commune, Last Days Ministries, founded by none other than Christian music megastar Keith Green. Now we're sharing our decades-long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. We tell our own stories and also invite guests to talk about fundamentalism, purity culture, arranged marriages, child abuse. Abuse, misogyny, homophobia, <laughs> power-hungry patriarchy, huh, and much more. Much, much more. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we finally found peace and joy on the other side. Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know it's estimated that there are over 3 million podcasts currently out there? So trying to get noticed and grow listeners is really hard. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not tell a friend about it? We can be found on all the podcast apps. So please tell them to search for Cult Hackers. In fact, why not pause the show right here and do it now? You can find the pod link on our show notes. So you can just copy and paste it into a message or share it using your app. Thank you. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, let's uh, let's get on to uh, the 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 policy change that, as an organisation, as an organisation, the FST Family Survival Trust are uh, pushing for. And of course, you you've written a a proposal for, uh, I suppose, essentially the UK government. But um, I'd like to talk about the, uh, the the benefits, you know, in terms of worldwide um, change. But um, can you tell us a little bit about that because I think it's kind of a bit of a, a best kept secret and, and I'd love more people to know about it and, you know, do something with it. So tell us about that piece that you've written. It's on the website so people can read it. It's um, actually a colleague wrote it up. Um, who's a member of, of our steering committee. Um, but it's a, it's something we've talked about as a group that there is in 2015, this very good law got passed the the, um, coercive control element of the Serious Crime Act, which was, but which talked about if you go read the guidance, it's got all the elements of what we see in cults of the way somebody controls somebody else through control of their personal life, their friends, their communication, their money, possibly the way they dress, etc. They isolate them and they I think it talks about they, they humiliate them, they make them frightened. It's all the elements that are very familiar to anyone who's studied cults or been in a cult. And an, an important element is that that they say at the end is the victim may not be able to acknowledge that they're a victim, which mm-hmm. I think is a really important piece. 
But this great law with these great guidelines, it's restricted to if the perpetrator and the victim are in an intimate or family relationship. So if a you know, again, the chair of the charity, Tom Sackville, says, if someone does that to me in my home, who I'm in a some kind of family or personal relationship with, in theory, they can go to prison for that. It's a crime. But if my neighbor does it to me, it's not a crime. Mm. Or if my workplace does it to me, or some of my church, it's not a crime. So this makes no sense. <laughs> you know, it's completely illogical. And I'm sure there's complicated political reasons why it was restricted to that. Uh, you know, again, the, maybe the power of the churches not wanting to get involved in that. But, you know, I'm not against bona fide religions that don't exploit people. I mean, I myself am an atheist, but I have a great respect for people who have religious and spiritual beliefs as long as they're not hurting anyone else. Mm. You know, whatever. <laughs> That's pluralism. That's the, you know, absolutely great believer in. Um, so, but we feel this, uh, first of all, there are no laws that can really go after cults for cultic coercive control. You can only go after a cult for a specific crime, and that may often be, end up with a low-level person in the cult being the, quote, criminal. But they're just doing it on orders of the leader, you know, and the leaders get off scot-free. So this is a serious, serious problem. So we would just like to take out that phrase, intimate or family relationship, so that it can apply broadly to whoever's doing this to su subjugate a victim for the benefit of the perpetrator by using these controlling mechanisms. Um, so we have that proposal. It's backed up in a way by our... Um, a piece of research we did about cults in the UK, where we took elements of those guidelines and we did a survey, I think about 105 people responded, to explaining their experience in cults per those guidelines. How were they isolated? How were they controlled in these various ways? So we have this piece of evidence. We have a proposal to change the law. Because we have limited resources, we haven't really been able to engage in a campaign a sort of well-designed campaign that maybe a larger charity with more resources could do. So it's, but the word's getting out. So it's, you know, we've had several articles in the media where they're discussing this, or at least say that this is something we want, yeah. but we need a lot more oomph behind it. And I think some of the ways we can have some oomph is if, yeah, if more people know about it, if, when they're experiencing a cult problem or reporting a past experience, they go to their MP, which, by the way, I think is a really important thing for people to do. MPs are obliged to talk to their constituents, Nadine Doris notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, they tell their complaint about their cult and then they talk about this and show this proposal and say, that, you know, we need a better laws to cover this and there are you know france has a better law they've got a law that um criminalizes psychological manipul manipulation where the perpetrator is seeking to subjugate a victim for their own 
benefit. It's anyway, that's a bit of a long story about that. And I think there's a couple other European countries, I think Belgium and maybe Luxembourg have similar laws, but we have nothing. Hmm. So I think we have to tell the politicians. We have to talk about it in the media. Again, a lot of people are being interviewed these days. So we have to bring this up, say, we want this law changed. And here's a suggestion. And I think spread like you're doing, spreading the words around all these different activists, you know, the Jehovah's ex Jehovah's Witnesses have a bunch of activists, the ex, ex exclusive brethren or Plymouth brethren, as they are now, and various other groups have within their ex-member groups have activists. Um, on that note, that's one of the things we did as a charity recently, had a small beginning meeting of some of those folks. It was very small and modest, but we hope to build on that. Because I think, you know, to change a law is not easy. And it takes I what I would call a, a movement, and I don't mean that in a grandiose mm -hmm. way, but I mean a collection of efforts of a lot of different people from all walks of life and using all different angles to make some noise that there's this terrible cult problem in this country and the world, but let's laws are bound by country, obviously. Here's what the problem is, and here's one piece of a solution. I mean, we need a lot of other things, but we have to have a law that, says we can do something about this um yeah i think that's that's a really that's a really useful summary of of where we are in terms of the policy um on coercive control it, uh, obviously we speak to people from different parts of the world and they often refer to the uk that we have coercive control laws um so it's um and I guess that is a good start. We actually have a base there to build on. You know, we're able to say, look, we have this law on the books currently about this very, very topic. Um, it's just that on purpose, we've decided to leave out 90% of the um, of the actual problem. But at least the law is there. So we can then say, well, actually, the hard bit's been done, that the principle that people, individuals can be coercively controlled, brainwashed, if you like, um, into doing things that they don't want to do or that's not in their interests and be trapped inside these organisations or inside these relationships, at least. That that has been established in law. Uh, all we need to do now is move it on to, as I say, 90% of the incidents that are actually happening. And I think that, you know, in terms of changes around the world that you know could be uh, a way for other nations other activists of other nations to say look you know the uk's done it uh, why don't we do it so i think it 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 could be a really important thing it's a really valuable opportunity that we've got here so yeah we'll definitely put the link on our show notes to that document uh, which people can download and read it's on a pdf they can then use it as the basis for, I guess, talking to their uh, representatives, MPs in the UK um, and trying to put some pressure. Because, of course, politicians are unlikely to act without uh, pressure from their constituents, I would say. Well, exactly. And, and that pressure can come in different forms. It can come in visiting your 
MP surgery. It can come in letters to the editor, actually, I think are quite important. I don't write them myself, but there are some people who are good at that. Or little, you know, opinion pieces, um, calling into radio shows, um, you know, just, yeah, we have to make some noise about it. And if anyone is a good campaigner and organizer and wants to come and help FST, you know, given our uh, given an understanding of our limited resources and our limited capacity, but you know we are trying to build that, and part of that is getting expertise from good campaigners who are willing to volunteer some time to help people make this noise. You know, yeah, great. Well, uh, again, we'll put a we'll put a link onto your contact page so that so that people can can reach out to you and and the fst um actually something quite nice happened on on the ride um i um obviously as you know i i broke down early on in the um in in the the challenge but but, um on the on the journey uh, i got picked up by the um by the support van um and the guy that was driving me back you know we got chatting about things and um Yes, you know, I, I I sort of talked about what I was doing this for, or, or the charity I was doing it for, and and the podcast and everything. And he was really interested. Um, he also had a, a friend who knew quite a lot about Jehovah's Witnesses um, and had a pretty nasty experience as he left. Um, but anyway, so I had a little chat to him, and then uh, he sent me a message to say, you know, can you? Uh, give us the link to the podcast because everybody was really interested. He obviously told everybody about that, um, and we actually had a a, a contribute contributor to the the fund who contacted me. He said, uh, "Give me a link to the where I can I can contribute." So that was really nice, and it it does just show you. It almost felt like the old days of witnessing, um, <laughs> but it it does just show you that actually people still don't really know that much it feels like it's kind of saturation level to us because we we obviously are very aware of everything that's been done podcasts youtube um, books and so on and so on but actually there's not that much awareness and when people do become aware then i think you know given the right conditions people are quite moved to take a stand i think people will be surprised at the amount of this that's going on I think what my experience is when I do any kind of public talk or, or, you know, talking to a neighbor, every single time when I sort of explain a bit about what a cult is, I don't even have to necessarily explain a lot. It's just, and that's why I like the word cult because people do have a bit of a sense of what that is. Mm-hmm. I swear every time you get people saying, well, yeah, you know, my daughter nearly got into something. Or, you know, when I was young, I was in a dodgy group and I never really knew what it was. But I think looking back, it may be every time. So, yeah, that's kind of my thesis or my argument is that, in fact, everyone has some connection to this and it's incredibly widespread. It's just they haven't got a language and the kind of social space in which this conversation is happening to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I kind of think it's kind of extraordinary in a way and continues to surprise me. Um, I mean, just this week, our new neighbors have moved in. I'm chatting, they ask what I do, and I say, and they say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, you know, my ex, I won't give details, you know, had some experience, you know. Yeah. 
uh, it's just constant. So I think that's the power of doing good media, not the horrible, you know, because the bad media does the opposite. It's like, well, my daughter wasn't at Jonestown. She didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Mm. But my daughter was in a coercive relate. not my daughter, by the way, uh, you know, in this group that made her work, you know, 24-7. So these more subtle and thoughtful media pieces really help people start to have that language and so forth. So um, I think the more of that, the more we're seeing people identify. But I agree we're still a long way away. And I think it becomes, I don't know, it's it's always been important. It becomes even more important when, like, everyone's phones, like social media, like the cool could be in your pocket at any time with new groups, with online and things like that. So the fact that people are talking about it online as well, so when you're scrolling through, you're not just, you know, it's all you know there's people saying the other side and being like have you noticed this is a bit weird actually and this isn't okay um because it's very easy to get sucked into into the algorithm because it doesn't really care what content it's presenting you with as long as you're in it um so i guess it's important you know hopefully stuff like this content and all the wonderful stuff that everybody makes people also come across that while they're delving into the into the cult world hopefully we pop up for other people <laughs> An interesting, I watched an interesting show on BBC uh, a week or so ago about Andrew Tate. There was a good mm. documentary. I needed an edit, but it's worth watching because that's one, obviously, Andrew Tate, everyone's worried about that now because all these mm -hmm. young men and boys are getting sucked into this. But what was really interesting about the documentary was that, in fact, Andrew Tate isn't the leader. There's actually a he has a sort of superior, so to speak, who's giving mm. him all this stuff. And it is actually a cult. And that is made quite clear in this documentary. So whereas we're, the rest of the media hasn't kind of caught up to that. And I mean, I didn't know that till I watched the documentary. Mm. It's not just this one guy with his YouTube channel. Mm. It's quite an organized effort. You know, and that's affecting lots and lots of people. You know, that's... Mm. Um, all over the place so again it's it makes the work we do quite relevant and important to a lot of people i was going to say the relevance is is really there so uh what's your kind of analysis as somebody that's been doing this work for as you said uh the long haul um what's your sort of analysis of where we are in in terms of the battle against these sorts of groups, um, do you think that we're making headway? Do you, you know, obviously there is a lot more content out there, but it feels like there's a lot more cultic types of groups and behaviour going on as well. Um, or is that just an illusion because I'm looking for it? I, I don't know. What, what do you, you know, you've got a sort of wider view. I mean, this thing about is there more out there? I suppose there is. But I'm not entirely sure, and I don't think we ha we don't have studies that can tell us exactly that. Mm. You know, we're seeing it more, I think, because of the speed of communications that we all experience now. However, I suspect there is more because one of the things, one of the conditions in which cults thrive is a fragmented society and kind of rapid changes and uncertainty in people's lives which clearly we're experiencing in all kinds of ways um so i would expect to see more in terms of the 
battle against them, I think there there is much more media. There's slowly more intelligent media. There's all these podcasts which are reaching a lot of people. So there is more of, you know, the people always talk about, oh, is the internet making more cults? Well, it is, but it's also making more, like yeah. you were saying, um, it's making more opportunity for people to communicate about them and for people in cults to find out about their cult, frankly. You know, there's a, that's going on too. A lot of, you know, in terms like of the coercive control law and trying to change that, I always think about the women's movement which is really what got that the current coercive control law in place. I mean, that was the result of the women's movement. You can't attribute it to anything else. Yeah. And over the long haul. And, you know, I often tell the story about how, you know, in my long ago youth, um, you know, my friends were working in the very first domestic abuse shelters that were run out of squats. I mean, that hadn't existed before. So from the long view, also being someone who's just turned 69, you know, that was in my early 20s that was happening. And it was only in 2015 we got this law. And the whole discourse around domestic violence has changed radically. You know, everybody can be a victim of domestic violence, including men. So the discourse has really changed radically. And so I kind of use that a bit as my yardstick. It's like yeah. it took a long time, a lot of effort, a lot of different people doing different things. And I think we are at the raising awareness stage. Like this is a problem and it's not just a problem in California, you know, the stereotype yeah. of, the, of cults. It's a problem here in London, in Peterborough, you know, in Scotland where, you know, it's everywhere. So I think that's, kind of the stage we are where we're at you have to see and name the problem and make it visible and i think the storytelling that for instance you're giving people a platform is hugely important how do we know what the problem is unless people tell their stories and all and the memoirs and the you know the other media mm -hmm. stuff and that <clears throat> has exploded and even these celebrities telling their stories about they were in Scientology or wherever, you know, that's sort of coming. That all matters and is important. And by the way, you know, a really interesting thing is the French, so it's a digression, so you might have to bring me back if I forget where I was. So the French have a ministry, that a ministerial office that deals with cults. So the French have been very progressive on this. Well, the funding got kind of cut in a couple of years back, but the new Minister of the Interior has given back all the funding and is putting a lot more emphasis on it. Interesting. Who mm -hmm. is the Minister of the Interior? She was brought up in Scientology. Wow. How interesting. So, so that, yeah, it's fascinating to me. So there are people who have direct, as we now call it, lived experience, who are perhaps getting into certain positions of power or are becoming academics or media people who are actually able to understand this problem from the inside. So I think all these pieces start making this a known problem. Um, you know, like if you look at the county lines thing, nobody really knew about county lines. 
But then the media went after it. And now we a lot of people sort of know that a lot of drug stuff happens through these county lines and exploitation of underage kids. Well, we're sort of getting there, I think. I think so. Yeah. Um, and I think that's snowballing. And so I, I remain hopeful. <laughs> Good. But if we have to turn that into some political noise mm. so that some action happens out of it. That's, I think, our next step. I, I, I mean, yeah, that's been great. And um, that's made me feel, cheered me up uh, no end, <laughs> um, Alex, because I think I think you're right. You know, there's such a, an important role to play. Everybody has the opportunity to tell their story if they want to, if they can. Um, some of us have the, uh, the look to be able to do a, a podcast or a YouTube channel or uh, and then we have academics like yourself who write books and do research. Um, and there's more and more of those. You know, we, we there's quite a few ex-Jehovah's Witnesses now that are in academia that study these things. Uh, we've interviewed one or two on our show. And that just makes me so uh, sort of warm in my heart, you know. And a lot of them are women as well, which is is really exciting Uh because they they were denied a voice during their time within the group, or at least a, a significant voice, and now they're able to really uh, make a contribution. So yeah, I think it's really exciting what's happening. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, as an example, I mean, if you think back, I don't know, ten years or some time ago, people just thought, and they still mostly think, well, they're these quirky people who go around knocking on doors, and they're not really harming anyone. But now we've had things like that brilliant film, Apostasy. We've got these podcasts. We've got these organized groups of people. We've got their protests at the convention. Mm. Again, it's not that widespread, but people are starting to get an idea that actually maybe this is a group that needs to be looked into a bit more close. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot get that without people telling their stories. How? Because that's the only way we can know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is a big beef I have with many sociologists of religion and apologists because they try to discount the stories of ex-members. But that's, you know, it's like saying to Primo Levi, we don't believe what happened to you in Auschwitz. We need an academic study of what happened yeah. because you're, sub you're too subjective about it. I mean, that's what they say about us as mm. ex-members. But these are closed secretive organizations. The only way to know what happens is from ex-members. The academics, the outside academics, can only know what's presented to them, which is generally a fiction. And some might try to infiltrate, but they can't get all the way in without really converting. It's yes. just difficult. The demands are too difficult. Um, so it's very limited I'm not saying that work isn't important and really good work has been done by outside academics. Yeah. But it is limited and you have to have contact with ex-members to find their stories to get a full picture. So the Absolutely. work is very important. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think it's something we 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 have talked about very recently actually the um mm -hmm. why people do these sorts of things uh, whether it be activism or podcasts or whatever you know why are we doing this stuff and um i think some people think it's it's just hate and uh 
viciousness but i i don't believe it is that i think it is as you said there's a there's a kind of human need to make sense of it by telling your story um there's a, a feeling that you don't want other people to go through it um and there is a yeah you want to be believed you want you want people to know the reality of of, uh, of that experience so yeah i i think uh, we need we need all of those we need the academic studies we need the uh, fine i think these groups um i want to hear what they've got to say and then we can see whether that actually matches up with people's experience when they come out you know so let's let's actually have all that information i'm more than happy for all that data to come in and then let's um let's analyze it through these different methods i mean part of the problem for i guess a sociological perspective is from an ethical perspective if you're doing an ethnographic study for instance you, you can't really go in there undercover and pretend that you're a convert you you from a, an ethical perspective you're expected to collaborate with the group itself so you know even from the very start of it you're kind of on a bit of a loser i think right exactly absolutely that's true yeah. so uh, so yeah uh, well um celine have you got any final questions that you want to ask uh I kind of got Alex. them as, as we went, really, because yeah. I was going to say my only other thing that I wrote down was about like the online thing, but we just got onto that naturally. So cool. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say, Alex, that we didn't cover? And I just think it's you know really positive that there are these ways for people to hear the inside stories about what's going on. And I know you do other stories too, you know, but um, it's really good information. It's really yeah. It's well. Great. I mean, we we want to say how much we admire you and um, and thank you so much for the continued stuff you're doing. I mean, it's um, uh, many um, ex-academics or people who have been in your position would probably sort of put your feet up and um, and just uh, let others do it. But you're you're still incredibly active in this scene. So, and, well, you know, my feet are up more often than they used to be. So. <laughs> <laughs> and people. Well, I'm yeah. a, young people are getting active. Are. Yeah. I want to be able to support them because I I am getting a little tired. It's true. Completely um, understandable. So yeah, um, I suppose that's a call to action. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's help Alex. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always brilliant to have you on. Um, thank you for your continued work. We'll put all the links to the Family Survival Trust on the show notes and your website as well, uh, so people can reach out if they want to. Um, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Alexandra Stein. Thank you both, Celine and Stephen. Mm -hmm.